Today, we're going to be exploring ancient Egyptian spirituality. And this is a really inspiring topic for me because the ancient Egyptians had such a rich belief system. They didn't see the cosmos as empty space. They saw it filled with energy and soul. And they developed techniques to be able to connect with that energy. Today, we're going to explore about 4,000 years of history in ancient Egypt, starting with around 3500 BCE and continuing until about 395 of our era. So we'll be looking at about 4,000 years of history. Egypt's history was much longer than that, but that's what we'll focus on today. And there wasn't just one tradition or one belief system over those 4,000 years, as you can imagine. There were many different myths, many different sacred stories. There were developments of stories. There were also times when different deities were more or less important. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And there were times when deities were merged together. This is syncretism where, for example, Isis and Hathor became, became basically the same deity. They shared characteristics. And Sekhmet and Mut and Horus had many different manifestations over the many years. And again, the Egyptians found ways to connect with the energy of the universe that they often saw in terms of a deity, a god or a goddess. And they would, this affected their entire life. Everything they did in life was colored by the fact that they wanted this connection with that energy. And I think many of us today seek that same connection with the soul and the energy of the universe. Now, when exploring ancient traditions, there are a few challenges, and this is the case with ancient Egypt. First of all, in their most sacred mysteries, they took an oath of secrecy, so they didn't share what happened. Also, some texts were found, but not a lot. And we do have a couple of later authors who describe the mysteries in detail. And this was the Roman scholar and author Apuleius. And we spoke about him when we explored rediscovering the wisdom of the ancient mystery schools. He wrote the novel called The Golden Ass. He was a Platonist philosopher who was born in the year 125 of our era. And here he, he describes in detail what happened during the Isis mysteries. And I really like this excerpt. He wrote, in the middle of the night, I have seen the sunshine in sparkling radiance. I have approached the deities and have seen them face to face. And the deities he's describing, these are the 42 gods and goddesses that are part of the negative confession 
where each of the deities from Egypt's 42 provinces asks the initiation candidate or the deceased person, depending on the situation, 42 questions, and the candidate must answer no to all of them. And we'll discuss this a little bit later. Then we also have the Neoplatonist author, Iamblichus, who was born in the year 245 of our era. And he wrote a book called On the Mysteries of the Egyptian, Chaldeans, and Assyrians. And he described in detail some of the ancient Egyptians' beliefs. Another challenge is our limited understanding about other cultures, their ins and outs. Like, you know, what, what's something that you would only know if you were raised in that culture? And one example is a board game called Senate, S-E-N-E-T, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Another, challenging with, another challenge with understanding any ancient culture is that we have biases. I have biases, you have biases, and most of the earliest archeologists and Egyptologists were white European males who of course had their biases. So when they discovered things, they interpreted them colored by their biases. There were a few female Egyptologists, or one exception is Amelia Edwards, who was, the author, who was an author and the founder of the Egypt Exploration Society. And today there are many female Egyptologists. However, it's still difficult to overturn some of the old paradigms where the Egyptian belief systems were really more about what the Pharaoh experienced instead of what individuals who were initiates of the mystery schools could experience. And a Rosicrucian named Max Guimau, he was a Belgian Egyptologist and he wrote a booklet called The Initiatory Process of Ancient Egypt. And this booklet is available online for free if you go to rosicrucian.org and you, uh, the top it says text and you find books and this book is available for free. And he offers the spiritual side of the ancient Egyptian practices and presents a very convincing case that what's described in the sacred text of the ancient Egyptians wasn't just for the Pharaoh, that it was for the initiates who had prepared themselves in the mystery schools. And the Pharaoh would travel to the spiritual world to manifest things in Egypt. He would go to this other plane and Rosicrucians offer that other individuals can do that as well. And here is what Frater Guimau shares when he, when, uh, from an ancient text referring to initiation. He says, and this is a, a quote from the old text, the postulate whispers, great deity, I am your offspring contemplating your mystery. Now this sounds a lot like 
what we've shared before from a modern Rosicrucian manuscript, which is that the goal of life, all life, including our lives, is to provide a mirror in which the divine can untiringly contemplate its own reflection. So the purpose of life is so that the creator can experience itself through us. And we can develop our understanding that the cosmos is not just empty matter, that it's full of soul and energy. And we can connect with that energy. One example of a bias is the name, the Book of the Dead, that the early Egyptologists gave to the texts that were found in the tombs. The correct translation is the Book of Emerging into the Light. So instead of this sacred text being called the Book of the Dead, because it was found in tombs, instead the real title is the Book of Emerging into the Light or the book of coming forth by day. And clearly you can see that this is uh, a very different meaning. Now, the book of the coming forth into the day or merging with emerging into the light includes magical incantations and guidance to help a deceased person in their journey to a sacred plane called the Duat. And that's either spelled D-W-A-T or D-U-A-T. And the goal of every soul was to reach the realm of Osiris at the center of the Duat. However, to get there, the deceased person or the candidate in an initiation had to get past demons and uh, malicious spirits and rivers of fire and many other hazards along the way. And the final test were 42 negative confessions that I mentioned before that are also called the confessions to Mott, who was the goddess of order. And then if they passed that test of the 42 negative confessions, then they would go to the final judgment. And we'll talk about that more. The ancient texts were written on papyrus. They were written on tomb walls. And later, sometimes, they were even on little cheat sheets that were stuffed inside the linen wrappings of a mummy. So this was so if a deceased person was in their journey in the afterlife and they were asked one of these 42 negative confessions, they had to be prepared. So they would write little excerpts from the text and they'd supposedly be able to pull it out. And the answer was always no, but it was, um, it prepared them for this journey to the Dewat. Now I'm going to share some slides with you here. All right, so let's imagine that we are a, an explorer and we find a tomb in ancient Egypt and we find this little bird statue on the left. And we're like, wow, there's a little bird with a human head. And on the right, well, that looks kind of like a tray or maybe a door, but it doesn't go anywhere. So this may have been how people first viewed 
some of these ancient artifacts if they didn't have any knowledge about the belief systems of the ancient Egyptians. So we're going to explore this. The ancient Egyptians believed that there were nine aspects of the soul, which included the body, which they thought was an aspect of the soul. And there was the ka, which is the life force or the essence of the person. And the ka was created at the same time as the living body. It was the double of the body and represented the essence of the person. The ka lived on after the death of the body. The ka still needed nourishment after death, which is why food and drink would be presented to the mummified body. And the ka absorbed the energy or essence of the offerings. It didn't eat these offerings that were left in the tombs. It was able to absorb the energy of the food, which was the nourishment. The person's vital essence or life force, it distinguishes between life and death. When you have the ka, you have life. If you don't have the ka, you're not alive. A goddess breathed the ka into the baby at the moment of birth. And the ka connected the individual with all of her or his ancestors and all of humanity through the collective unconscious. And the ancient Egyptians hoped to be able to reconnect with that through the ka. Next, we have the ba. And the ba was a person's presence in the world. This term is often translated as soul, but this doesn't really cover its full meaning. The ba could be seen as the effect that we have on the world around us. So it's how our life affects the vibrations of the world. It's, it's our presence in the world. It's also their distinctive personality, and it could even be the person's reputation. The Ba was depicted as a bird with the head of the deceased person. The Ba was anchored to the body in life, but it was released in death, and maybe even when we were asleep. The Ba could come and go and even fly to different realms, different spiritual realms. And this allowed the person to connect with the higher self, also to travel shamanically. The Ba was what made that person unique, and it was kind of like their personality. Another aspect of the soul was the Kat, K-H-A-T, or Ka spelled K-H-A. And this was the physical form that was considered part of the human soul itself. This is the part that could decay after death and it was the mortal part that was preserved through mummification. Another aspect of the soul was the Ren, R-E-N. And this was the person's true name. A vital part in our journey through this life and the afterlife was the Ren, was the name, the sacred name. Children were given a nickname so that no one knew the person's real name. And a Ren is kind of like if you're familiar with some Native American names, 
like Keeper of the Flame, or She Laughs, or He Fights, a name like that. So I invite you to consider for a moment, what would you want your true name to be? Your Ren. What do you want to invoke in this lifetime through your name? And now imagine someone dear to you and consider what name you would wish for them. Another aspect of the soul is the Ab, Ab, or Ib, Ib. The ancient Egyptians in hieroglyphs, they didn't write vowels. So sometimes you have to choose between what they are. And the ab or the ib is the heart. It's the source of good and the opposite of good within a person. It's also the center of our moral awareness. After death, the ib either lived with the deities or it was eaten by a creature called amut, who we will meet later, which would lead to a final death. And then there would be no life after this life. And the ib is important in the final judgment scene with the weighing of the heart. The heart is left in the body during mummification and there would be a heart scarab, a, an amulet that would be a seal over the heart of the person. And the, the ib was the seat of the person's individuality and the record of their thoughts and actions on earth. Next is the shuit, which is the shadow that is ever present. It's the shadow like when we're walking outside and we see our shadow. And it's also a shadow that protects us. So the shuit is a shadow that requires protection and that provides protection. And then there is the ak, A-K-H. And this was the radiant, glorious spirit. This is what happens to the initiated person. It's when the ka and the ba are successfully united. And this was through a magical union. The ak, A-K-H, would then enjoy eternity among the stars with the deities. And this was the goal of every Egyptian. Now there are two aspects of the Ak. One is the Sahu, which would appear as a ghost or in dreams. And the other one is the Sekum. This is another aspect of the Ak. It manifested itself as the power to control one's surroundings and outcomes. It was a, a vital life energy that manifested in that way that it could control surroundings and outcomes. Now we're going to talk more about the AK, A-K-H. And before we do that, just with a simple introduction to aspects of the soul, do you now view these two images differently? Now you realize that this human-headed bird is a Ba bird, and these were included in tombs so that it could fly and take care of the deceased person. 
The door at the right is what is called a false door. And the Ba was able to magically enter and exit the tomb using this false door. And these are both artifacts in your museum in San Jose, the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. So now we're going to talk about Tutmosis III. And this is a statue of Tutmosis III at Rosicrucian Park. You can see part of the foundation that he's in the center of an ox sign. And the ox sign is a cross with a loop at the top. And this represents everlasting life. Tutmosis III lived from 1482 to 1425 BCE. This was during the New Kingdom. And his name means born of Thoth. And Thoth was the keeper of the mysteries and the initiator. Tutmosis III directed the mystery school at Karnak and united the various mystery schools as a single order. He's extremely important in the Rosicrucian tradition. This is a photo of a building called the Akmanu in Karnak, Egypt. And Akmanu means the monument dedicated to the divine part that lives in the human person. Menu means monument or foundation and Ak, we've talked about this, this aspect of the soul, this, this illumined aspect of the soul. And every year, Tutmosis III held a council of all the leaders of the mystery schools in this sacred place. And we can suppose that the highest initiations took place in this building. This is a photograph of Tutmosis III's tomb in the Valley of, King, uh, Valley of the Kings. And his burial chamber is designed to look like a huge scroll. And you can see that a little bit in this with the complete text of the book of the Am Duat, this magical plane of energy, the Am Duat. The background is yellow, kind of tinged yellow, so that it would look like aged papyrus. And this is the earliest version of the Am Duat. It's showing the ancient Egyptian deities as stick figures in Egyptian papyrus writing style. And we'll see more about this in a minute. The ancient Egyptians called this the Book of the Secret Room. The Am Duat means that which there is in the afterlife. And this book, which is depicted in Tutmosis III's tomb, is divided into 12 parts representing the 12 hours of the night. This image is from the fifth hour, and it shows the sun is crossing over the secret cave of the god Sokar, which is sealed with the head of Isis above. So he's being protected by Isis above. And inside, Sokar is holding a winged serpent representing chaos. So I've mentioned Mott, and we'll talk more about her in a minute. Mott represents truth and harmony and justice, and most of all, order, as in the opposite of chaos. So imagine living in a world where even now 96% of Egypt is desert and all life was along this very narrow strip of the Nile. And there were animals that could end your life and there was disease and there were challenges with enough food. 
and chaos was considered a great danger to the ancient Egyptians. Here's another image from Thutmose III's tomb, and it shows the dung beetle, who is also called the sacred scarab beetle. And the beetle was considered sacred in ancient Egypt because this beetle would roll up, would make little rolls of um, dung, and it would lay its eggs in little dung balls and would roll it across the desert. And then miraculously, life would be born from a dung ball. So it was a way of, it, it symbolized everlasting life. And this shows the sacred scarab beetle with the sun and with the sun god Ra. So the Duat was a place of pure potentiality, the source of all that will manifest in the universe. And just like an acorn contains the potential for what? For an oak tree. And an oak tree is not just any tree. Oaks can be massive. In the same way, the Amduat contains the potential for everything that manifests in the universe. So it is a place of pure potentiality. And the ancient Egyptians viewed the Amduat as an imaginal world, not imaginary, but imaginal. And this is very much related to the Rosicrucian concepts of reality and actuality. For the ancient Egyptians, Reality was both visible and invisible. And again, Rosicrucians refer to this as reality, which is the world that we can see around us, and actuality, which is the essence or the source or the kernel of everything that we experience. Actuality exists in the noumenal world, which is the, the noumenal numeral let me say that. The noumenal world is the spiritual counterpart of the material world. The only way to apprehend actuality is through the faculties of the soul by using meditation, attuning with the celestial sanctum, through the subconscious, through our psychic centers. And all of this is discussed. Uh, actuality and reality are discussed extensively in the fourth temple degree monographs. In the imaginal world, which is this invisible to us world of energy, the Pharaoh aligns himself or herself with greater than human cosmic forces, manifesting a spiritual energy field on the physical plane. And this is the basis of the Rosicrucian visualization and manifestation techniques. We attune with what we want on another plane and our thoughts activate it into manifestation in this world. The ancient Egyptians had a highly developed awareness of the interior realms of their deities, of energy, and of archetypes. And this Amdawat is the invisible world. 
the world of pure potentiality. Now, where is this? Eventually, the Amduat is a pathway to the stars in the interior of the sky goddess Newt. And this is an image of Newt here. You can see her with her arms stretched out. She's protecting everything on earth. Every night, Newt swallowed the sun and gave birth to the moon. And this, where it went was to the Amduat. So imagine if you watch the sunset and then the next morning it, it didn't disappear, it comes back up again with all that energy. It was refreshed in the Amduat. Now, Newt, she, the, the stars were on her flesh. The stars in the sky were her outside. There was an invisible realm, the Amduat, that existed within her. And it was not just the sun god who could enter the Duat at the end of the day. All creatures were believed to enter the Duat at the end of their lives, and initiates were able to work with their energy, this energy while they were alive. So if a deceased person goes to the Duat, they pass into its dark interior and they're born again, just as the sun god was born from the Duat each morning. So there was a very important mystical threshold between what we could see, the visible cosmos, the stars on Newt's body, that is the outside of Newt. And her name is spelled N-U-T, but it's pronounced Newt. There's so much more to Newt than just seeing the stars. What exists invisibly in her interior is the Amduat. And it's a threshold we all come to when we die, when everything becomes concentrated in a single point and then disappears from view. And the ancient Egyptians believed that each of us had a related star. And we've talked about Thoth briefly today, but also in other teleconferences, who is the deity of the mysteries and the initiator. And he's symbolized as either an ibis or as a baboon. And here we see two images of the baboons and the sacred scarab. And this is a person attuning and connecting with their star, their guiding star. This is an image of the tomb in your museum in San Jose. This is Newt, the sky goddess on the ceiling and it's um, dark in the tomb and this photo's dark. And you can see that she's swallowing the sun and giving birth to the moon. She does this every night. I invite you now to consider that you are, consider that you are on the other side of the deity Newt, the sky goddess who protects all life on earth. And you are entering the invisible realm on the far side, the infinite and the eternal. Just close your eyes for a moment and attune with Newt.
Open yourself to her vastness of space, her vastness of time, the lack of time and space, this eternal and infinite place. And when you're ready, bring your awareness back to here and now. This is the cartouche, the royal name of Tutmosis III. And you can see the scarab beetle. And then the next symbol that you see, it's, it's the one that's within the oval. Then in the middle is, um, water and then above that is the sun and it's um, Kepper is the scarab and Mem and Ra and below that you can see two hieroglyphs on the left you see the Ankh which is a symbol for the for life and on the right is the hieroglyph for light and this is the cartouche of Tut Tutmosis III and again the scarab beetle is the principle of coming into being or becoming. And his cartouche is typically called Men Keper Ra. And again, we can see that the ancient Egyptians goal was to connect with the, with the star that guided their life. That after this life, they would reconnect with the star that guided their life. There is a text from the coronation of Tutmosis III. And it, this, uh, um, this image is um, from his tomb. And in the coronation, it describes the king transforming himself into a falcon. And he flew up to heaven, and, or the Duat, and there, and there had a vision of Amun-Ra. He was infused with the God's spiritual power and assimilated into himself the wisdom of the deities. So that was the goal of each ancient Egyptian. And here is what Tutmosis III wrote. He, Amun-Ra, opened for me the doors of heaven and unfolded the gates of the Akhet, a place of spiritual transformation. I rose to heaven as a divine falcon and saw his secret image in heaven. I worshiped his majesty. I was infused with all his Ak power, the luminous spiritual power, and instructed in the, in the wisdom of the deities. And this is similar to shamanic experiences, where in other traditions, a shaman will travel to a different spiritual realm and come back with the ability to communicate with that realm and to heal others. In the Rosicrucian Digest featuring ancient Egypt, we included an article by Jeremy Nadler called The Shamanic Wisdom of the Pyramid Text. And it's a great explanation of how to interpret the ancient Egyptian mysteries 
as shamanic experiences. Now, Hermes Trismegistus, who we've spoken about before, he was the perpetuator of the ancient Egyptian mysteries. He wrote the Corpus Hermeticum and he addresses Asclepius, the Greek god of healing and medicine. And he says, do you not know Asclepius that Egypt is an image of heaven or what is more true, a projection or descent of every disposition of celestial things. And we attune and activate these into existence. And if we could speak more truly, our land, Egypt, is the temple of the world. And the temples in Egypt were often built on this, this model that you can see. And they, were, um, they would start with a wider open area that then led to the Holy of Holies. The temples were always built in areas where special terrestrial and cosmic energies converged. And they were dedicated to a specific deity associated with that energy. And here is the temple of Isis at Philae. Most of these temples use that same plan and it started with a wider open area that leads to the Holy of Holies, which is called the Naos. This was the most sacred place in the temple with the most concentrated form of that energy. It symbolized the presence of the god or goddess to whom the temple was dedicated. And this plan of this model of the temple symbolized the ancient Egyptians creation story. There was a big bang and then there was water everywhere and a mound, some land appeared out of the water. And the hippostyle hall that you can see here in the model, it was before you got to the most sacred places, the proneos, which is just outside the Holy of Holies, and then the naos, the most sacred area. And it included, it was meant to look like the body of water that the Ba encountered on its way to the Duat. So the hippostyle hall mimicked a thicket of papyrus that grew in the swampy edges around the primeval mound that came up out of the water. And this is your museum, the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum in San Jose, which is modeled on the Temple of Amun at Karnak. And you can see how it has the thicket of papyrus and then inside is you, you go to the more sacred places. And in much of what you would see in ancient Egypt, there's more than what meets the eye. There's a deeper understanding at the energetic level. For example, this game board. If we came upon this, we might think, oh, this is something that people would play as just a kid's game. This particular board is in your museum and it's from the 18th dynasty from around 1550 BCE. And you would play this game. The goal was to get all of your pieces off of the game board. And whoever did that first was admitted into the afterlife. And in earlier versions of this game, there was an X on the board. But this is the first example where instead of an X, it shows water. And this is one of the trials that you would have to pass in order to proceed through the Amduat. 
And the game is a reflection of the ba passing through the duat. And it's connecting the spaces of the individual playing squares to different stages along the journey. Other things that may symbolize more than we realize are incense for the ancient Egyptians. They believed that the fragrance of incense was the aroma of the deity in their presence. And both smoke and the deity can permeate the sanctuary invisibly. This is a incense burner in the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum that was actually used in ancient rituals. And here you can see the Pharaoh Akhenaten, he's holding an incense burner exactly like that. And the deity, the Aten, is holding an Ankh, the symbol for life, to his nose, indicating that he is breathing in the cosmic essence. He's breathing in the essence that gives life. Now, this idea was much earlier than Akhenaten and Tutmosis III. This artifact is not in our museum. It's in the Brooklyn Museum. And it's a female figurine from around 3500 BCE. And she has a very large nose or possibly a beak of a bird. And again, this is breathing in the life-giving cosmic essence. And in this very earliest period, there, uh, there's a, a related bowl that shows that priests were worshiping her. So this was a very ancient representation of the mother goddess. So now we're gonna speak briefly about the different deities. And throughout most of the ancient Egyptians spirituality, their history, their tradition. They understood that there was one deity beyond all that we probably could not understand. But there were aspects that we could understand. And this is a lot like how Rosicrucians describe the divine or God and the cosmic, the laws that we can, that manifest in our world. So Rosicrucians never claimed to be able to understand the divine. We hope to have a connection with the divine. And we do seek to understand the world around us through the cosmic and the cosmic laws we can understand. For the ancient Egyptians, they saw it similarly. If you shine a white light through a prism, it reflects all the colors of the rainbow. And the ancient Egyptians called these nature. Now, Egyptologists would call them gods or goddesses, However, a more accurate translation is the essence of that energy. So if you shine a white light into the world, it creates healing and war and courage and love and joy. It creates all these different aspects of life. That's what those different colors are. And that is also what the different deities symbolize. Isis was an extremely important deity for all of ancient Egyptian history. She was a secondary figure in the oldest myths where she was a helpmate to Osiris, but then she became much more powerful. 
This is from Tutmosis III's tomb. She is shown here as a sycamore tree and um, she is nursing the Pharaoh, Tutmosis III. The Isis is the tree, the sacred tree. And this is a statue of Isis in Hadrian's palace. Hadrian was a Roman emperor. Can you imagine a Roman emperor worshiping an Egyptian goddess? The Romans went back and forth on whether they um, persecuted or embraced the ancient Egyptian mysteries. And this image is drawn by Frater Michael Bull. And we had a class on the ancient mystery schools. And this is based on Isis appearing to the main character in the book, The Golden Ass, written by Apuleius. And it describes her as this vision of beauty who comes to save Lucius, the, the donkey, who was a man who accidentally turned himself into a donkey, into an ass, through the misuse of magic. This is a statue of Sekhmet, the lion-headed headed goddess, and she is the goddess of war and healing. And deities often represented opposites, war and healing. This is a beautiful statue in your museum, and it was commissioned by Akhenaten's father, Amenhotep III. He ordered that 730 statues of the goddess Sekhmet be created and installed in his mortuary temple to beseech his help for healing, for healing him. And uh, one, was, one was for, 365 were for, um, were seated and 365 were standing. And uh, this statue is one of those. This is another statue of Sekhmet. In real life, she's probably about eight inches tall. And this was the very first artifact collected by H. Spencer Lewis for the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. It's a beautiful little artifact that initially he kept on his desk and envisioned that she would manifest the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. People would come to his desk and to his office and say, what is that? And he'd say, this is the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. And it manifested. Today, your museum houses the largest collection of ancient Egyptian artifacts on display in Western North America. Now, this is the deity Horus, who is a falcon. He is associated with the sun deity Ra. Horus was the intermediary between the material and spiritual worlds and between the living and the dead. He also symbolized our dual nature as we are a spiritual being and a material being. The pharaohs of Egypt were associated with Horus since the pharaoh was considered to be the earthly embodiment of the deity. The pharaoh was considered to be the earthly embodiment of Horus. And the prince, the son of the pharaoh, who would be the next pharaoh, was always called the Horus in the nest. Isis was a protector of Horus, and here are some artifacts including this one in the center that shows Isis protecting Horus. Another aspect of the divinity is Hathor, who is the goddess of love, 
music, dancing, pleasure, fertility, and the protector of women. She was often shown as a woman with cow ears or as a cow. And she was originally a personification of the Milky Way, which was believed to be the milk that flowed from the udders of a heavenly cow. And this linked her, uh, this linked her with Newt. So this is part of that syncretism because Newt was a sky goddess and Hathor was um, associated with the Milky Way. Here are some images from your museum of some sistrum, these instruments that you see with the loop. And these were played kind of like a rattle and they make a sound like this. And that's actually what the ancient Egyptians called this instrument. They didn't call it a sistrum. That was a Greek term. They called this instrument and it often had an image of Hathor on the handle, which you can see here. And this was a very personal deity. The sistrum invoked her presence. And this was the sound that Hathor made, that this cow made or the goddess made as she was walking through the reeds. So it was like stereo. She was right there. Next, we have the goddess Mat, who was the goddess of order. Again, the opposite of chaos. She was the goddess of justice, truth, and balance. She represented how the universe was maintained, which is through order and balance. And we're going to learn more about Mat here as we journey through the tomb of the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. So you enter up this ramp, and then there is um, a tomb under the museum. And this is the tomb of a man named Kunimhotep and he's shown over to the left and he must answer those questions from 42 gods and goddesses that ask if he lived a good life. So they say, um, Kunimhotep, have you ever stolen anything? And he would have to answer that deity and the answer would have to be in the negative. And he would say, hail Isis, no, I have never stolen anything. Then the next deity would say, Kunimhotep, have you ever eavesdropped? And he'd have to answer no. And the questions got harder. A deity would ask him, Kunimhotep, have you ever caused anyone to weep? Have you ever denied a hungry man food? And the answer always had to be no. And if Kunimhotep passed this test, and the, these images show walking around the tomb, here are the last of the deities, then he would be led to the final judgment. And he was led by Anubis, the jackal-headed deity. And you can see Anubis holding his hand. That's Kunimhotep on the left. And Anubis has an ankh in his hand, the symbol for everlasting life. And he would lead the deceased person before, before the scales of justice, 
where their heart was weighed against the feather of mat or the feather of truth. So the ib that contains a record of everything we've ever done or thought is in that jar on the left. And Anubis is presenting him there for the final judgment. Over on the right, you can see Thoth, who is taking notes of everything. He's transcribing what is happening for the record so that Kunimhotep can move on to the next world. And this is an image of Anubis in the museum. Often in tombs, there would be a small figure of Anubis. And it's um, been determined that Anubis is not actually a jackal. He's actually um, more related to Africa's only member of the gray wolf family. He's a Himalayan wolf. They've done DNA samples of, of the mummified Anubis. And so we have Anubis leading Kunimhotep. And in every tomb, the person is successful. They answer the question successfully. But you can see in the middle here that there is a double of Anubis. There is a second Anubis figure there who is tipping the scale in the favor of Kunimhotep so that the scales are balanced because the person who builds the tomb wants to be able to go on to the afterworld. But if the scale did not balance, here's the creature that I mentioned earlier, Amut, who is down next to the feather, Amut would devour the person's heart and they would not live on if they did not pass this final judgment, which shows that they had lived a good life, that they had been a good person. And the um, Amut is made of the four man-eaters in ancient Egypt, the lion, the crocodile, the hyena, and the hippopotamus. And so happily, Kunimhotep passed the test and then moved on to the Amdawat. And often when a person was mummified, there would be a scarab on their heart, one of those scarab beetles. And there was a prayer that went with it that said, oh my heart, which I had from my mother, the center of my being, do not stand against me as a witness, do not oppose me in the judgment hall. In the presence of the keeper of the balance, Mat, you are my Ka, my spirit in my body, the creator who makes my limbs prosper. And so the deceased person in this, this invocation is saying to the heart in their body, please don't say anything if there were some times when I did eavesdrop or I did make someone weep. And again, you have Anubis there as a double who's helping the individual. Now, there are some papyri that have been found that talk about when the scales are balanced. In one case, it says, Osiris proclaims, I grant you the title of just. You are just. You are triumphant. In Mat, the truth, you are initiated. And another text says, when they're victorious, I have entered into Mat, the harmony of Mat. Yes, I carry Mat. I am the master of Mat, meaning that they have mastered order and balance and harmony. 